Hi, welcome to Interviews Podcast. I am passionate about business. I used to run businesses for others before launching my own. And I have always asked myself one key question. What is the secret recipe to properly structure and successfully run a business? So I am on a quest to find out through insightful conversations with entrepreneurs all around the world. Follow me on my journey to crack the entrepreneurship code. Interviews is sponsored by Bertoli Digital, a Wix website agency built for startups, individuals and SMEs. Bertoli Digital is also Finland's first certified Wix expert and Wix partner agency. 1% of all the agency's project revenue go to Global Footprint Network to help change how the world manages its natural resources and respond to climate change. If you want to know more, www.bertolidigital.com or contact at bertolidigital.com. This is interviews number 10. Today I am with Joshua Schulman, the founder and CEO of Schulman Communications Interactive based in Los Angeles, USA. Hi, Joshua. Thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Laurent. How are you? I'm very good. Yourself? Fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. So let's start. Please give us a little bit of background about yourself and your business. Sure, sure. I have an interesting coaching business, teaching public speaking and presenting skills, mm-hmm. also sales training and business English. So I work with folks all over the world, as well as native speakers as well, to learn to better pitch present and persuade. So we learn a lot of wonderful things in our lives, in our careers, whether we're engineers or scientists or doctors or lawyers or entrepreneurs, whatever it might be, we learn what we're going to talk about, but we never really learn how to say it more effectively and how to be more engaging. And at a certain point, you're going to get, have to get someone's buy-in, right? We're going to have to get that check writer. We're going to have to get that, the consumer excitement or the corporate excitement. And a lot of that has to be in regards to your passion about your subject matter and what you're talking about. So what are you passionate about? Well, it's interesting. I was an actor for years and I was passionate, I thought, about being an actor. But the reality was it was about the audience. I enjoyed getting up in front of the audience and I didn't have a particular ambition about being famous. So as an actor, and I was a trained actor, I went to Hollywood High School, the Magnet School of Performing Arts. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, a famous acting school in the United States for their two-year program. And then I went to USC in their BFA theater program and uh, really enjoyed that whole element of playing a role, right? From beginning to end, doing it on stage. But then the real world of acting is nothing like that. The real world of acting is basically twiddling, waiting, you know, twiddling your thumbs here, waiting for your agent to call so you can get five lines on a crappy TV show. It's, it's not what we trained and what we thought acting would be. Yes. And so over the years, how I made a living was I was a sales guy, right? And I was pretty good at it. And I got better and better and became a sales manager, sales trainer, a whole host of things. And, and then I started to recognize that going to speak at conferences and panels and things like that was a very effective way for prospecting, right? Very effective way for lead gen. Because here I am speaking, let's say at one point I was director of corporate sales for a company, uh, speaking in um, Vegas at a big conference for how language and cultural training has changed in the 
you know, 21st century for 3,000 people and 800 people come up and ask me for my business card. That's effective prospecting, right? Mm -hmm. So that started to become a really turn of events. I was very active with Toastmasters for years, which is a tremendous organization, you know, but sometimes people join that to get over their fear of public speaking. Others join to hone their skills. And for me, I was going to do this right. I was also a comedian. I was doing a lot of stand-up comedy. Also with not the ambition of being a famous comic, but honing my skills as a, as a comedian in training. Because if you can engage them with humor, it's going to be a lot more effective, right? So that was kind of an interesting dynamic of that. And so all of that started to bring together my interests. Uh, I play a lot of poker over the years. I started teaching poker over the years to a lot of business people who did not know how to play because companies were having charity events and benefits. And this was a unique opportunity to network. I love to network. And when I go into network, if I go to a conference or an event or a mixer, there's a game plan. I actually am not just doing that to socialize. Most people aren't, but they don't know why they're there. And it's not often the best use of our time if we're just fooling around. And it's not always that we have to get something. You never know who you meet in this life, right? Not about what they do for you, but how they affect you and connect with you as a human being. And so that became an interesting way. So now I do seminars on poker and also chess. I teach chess. All these things that I love including acting. I teach acting and voice too. I manifest them in my own modules and programs. I have courses in these things and it became a unique way to, what do they say when you're a kid, you know, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. And that was kind of <laughs> So when did you realize that you could do a, you, you could become an entrepreneur and lead from those? I, I think as an actor, I felt I was an entrepreneur. The way I was positioned was as a commodity to be bought and sold. You're not in control. You don't pick the projects, you get hired. But then I started to recognize when I had a Shakespeare company with my partner, and he was a lawyer by day, and uh, he was a few years older than I, and we coordinated and we created a Shakespeare company. We actually set it up as an entity called the American Shakespeare Company, which was interesting because there was a Royal Shakespeare Company in London, and we were not quite of that stature, but we figured, why not? And it wasn't taken as an LLC. And so we built that. And then I would go and approach restaurants, all kinds of businesses to do our Shakespeare presentations, particularly one that started that was very unique called Shakespeare's Bar and Grill. And I went to the owner and I said, what is your slowest night? He said, Sundays. I said, I got an idea. And I packed the house and I worked with him, you know, a portion of the food and, 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 uh, and, and uh, drink to be able to pay the actors. And it became a fascinating way to be able to um, entrepreneurially explode with my acting as a joy and then also make a few nickels, right? And then, uh, and during the week, I was hosting cigar nights and other things in the 90s when they were popular at jazz clubs and stuff. And so I would tell all of my guys and buddies who would go to those things, hey, you need a little culture in your life. Come to my Shakespeare thing on the weekend, you know, and vice versa. And it became a very interesting play on how we can use networking entrepreneurially because it's not, as we know, what we know all the time. It's who we know and who knows us. So we want to work more effectively. If I go speak in front of a large group, right, and all those people come up and ask me for my business card, that's a lot better than me just running all over the place, you know, trying to introduce myself and all that kind of jazz. So, so that became the start of it. And I think, Every venture I started getting involved with uh, a buddy of mine, uh, we had a small um, uh, beach camp, a surf beach camp here in California. We started with eight kids, and by the fourth year, we had 250 kids a day. Mm -hmm. My partner still has that business. I'm out of it now. I mean, he has it's the largest surf beach camp in California. So there were a myriad of things I was involved in all the time, and even in my sales roles, I perceived it as an entrepreneur. 
And the idea was, if the, I thought of this like this, if, if the keys of the, if these are the keys to the kingdom, if they were mine, if this was my business, would I do this? Is this how I would spend my time? How would I run this? How would I do that? And I did it. And I would talk to my managers or direct the folks who I reported to and ask them, can I run with this? I have an idea on this. And if this is, I would say to them, if this is my business, this is what I would want to do. And they would say, run with it, Josh, go. You want to go to that conference and speak? You want to do this, do that? No other salespeople were doing that. Mm. So it became an opportunity. And then with Toastmasters, I won a lot of you know, speech contests, over 40 of them. And then in, what is it, 2006, I came in third in the regionals for the World Championship of Public Speaking. I beat out like 25,000 people to get to that point. I didn't even win the whole thing, right? If I had come in first, I would have gone to the finals in D.C. But that by itself became a very unique feather in my cap, an opportunity. Now, my friends who were winning the whole thing were doing very well, but they were focusing on the cottage industry of Toastmasters, right, to help them with their clubs or maybe contests. I wanted to work with everybody who would never go to a Toastmaster club or maybe who don't even know what it is. It's a different mindset. All of those things combined entrepreneurially gave me a lot of direction, excitement, and uh, recognizing that this is something as we like to talk about sometimes in business, SOS, right? It was, I could scale it, I could optimize it, and uh, I mean, systemize it, optimize it, and then of course scale it to a larger degree, which is now what we're doing with some exciting new things with virtual reality, teaching public speaking, sales training, all of my subjects and topics rather, and offerings using VR. A lot of entrepreneurs uh, do business development or sales by themselves. Obviously, you have a lot of experience in sales. What, what would you say uh, is required to be a great salesman? I think curiosity is the keyest thing. You've got to want to know when someone asks you a question, want to really explore that, right? You, you want to ask them questions rather about really wanting to know even more about why they do that. That's why I love, you know, elements like this. I mean, you're really incisive as you ask these questions about what goes on in the tickering mind. I do this too. I'm, I, I'm always asking folks what makes them successful and don't tell me you get up early. Don't tell me you work hard because those things are kind of weird. They don't mean anything. I want to know really in a practical, useful level, what is it you're doing from that standpoint? So I think those things, curiosity, of course, this notion of tenacity, right? <laughs> the idea you don't give up, right? They teach these kids, they talk about this element of grit, and it is true. You know, you have to have intelligence. And I talk about this all the time, this notion of IQ, intelligence, yes. EQ, empathy, having that emotional quotient and connection, with your, the person you're working with in whatever capacity. And IQ, I mean, I'm sorry, LQ, which I think is the most important, which is love quotient. Do you even care about what you're selling? Do you care about what you're talking about? People know it's a genuine, authentic thing. And that's what's missing because many people perceive their sales position or role as just a gig, a job, a transition to go from this thing to that thing, as opposed to a, a bona fide career. Now, yes, you mentioned something interesting about the entrepreneur who starts. He is the first biz dev guy, right? He's got to get that first whale account or get that check signed for, you know, or, or, or get the funding or get the term sheet. But oftentimes they never really cultivated that skill further. And then they hand it off, right? They delegate it to someone else. Yeah. I'm called in all the time. Josh, can you build and train my sales team? I come in for a quarter, two quarters, and I do that. And then I move along. And I think that's something of a challenge. I think more entrepreneurs need to learn sales training from prospecting all the way to close. Yes, how to deal with objections and, and, and get referrals and how to deal with uh, issues of um, when to move on to the close part of that. 
right? Uh, how to identify your DM, your decision maker. Is this person, are you wasting your time talking to someone who has no capacity or authority to authorize this? Often entrepreneurs, they, they start this journey because they're very passionate about what they do and they think that they can do it you know, uh, way better than others or at least yeah. can deliver great stuff. Yeah. But what they forget to realize is that at one point, or maybe since the beginning, they are the face of the company. And they will be asked to speak to a large group. Yes. I guarantee you. And I, tell, I get hired by CEOs all the time, but you know who hires me, Laurent? Not the CEO, the assistant. They say, my boss, he or she, they're struggling out there. They're diluting our brand. They're not, no one's coming up and asking or talking to them after. They're not getting any benefit of this. And the challenges, and that's why I love working with engineers, right? I work with so many folks where they create and build all these amazing things, and now they can't tell us about it. In fact, I do a program for kids, for teens, um, up at PVNet here in Los Angeles in Palos Verdes. It's a six-week course I created for these young entrepreneurs. I want them to be entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs, not think tech engineers. Right? They're learning droning, 3D modeling, gene mapping, VR, all these wonderful things. Okay, now you come home and your grandma or somebody says, well, how does it work? And they can't articulate it. Mm-hmm. And we have to bonafide build that skill. Even entrepreneurism, by the way, is not even taught in America in high schools. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a subset of, of a graduate program for your MBA or maybe undergraduate, you could do entrepreneurship as a, as a track. We need to be teach. I mean, we're just basically creating people to go work in a cubicle for 40 uh, hours a week, 40 years for 40 years and not really building. Things are changing. Even now as we speak with the coronavirus and things are going on, a lot of companies, a lot of clients, and I have 54 clients or sessions a week, groups and private, and we're talking about this. Many of them are being told by their company, bring your lap home, top home tonight. You may not be coming in tomorrow. Number of them are trying trials to see about this remote working, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. And this is going to change the landscape, regardless of what transpires with this. And I anticipate we'll, we'll come all through this, but it's a, it's, a, it's a very serious circumstance we're in. But it will change how we work in the, around the world, not just in America. And so people are going to have to do more webinars, more programs like this. They're going to learn how to have to communicate more effectively uh, doing um, conference calls or what have you. And yes, that means we're going to have to enhance our skill set of language. And if it means English, yes, we're going to have to. It's not about losing our accent. I get so much requests for accent reduction, which is almost a therapeutic process. I want them to be understood. Yes, I have actors who want to lose accents, and I have people who want to gain an accent. That's great. But that's different as opposed to what you're trying to focus on. And the elements of English is essential. Most folks, even native speakers of English, have, you know, after fifth grade, they stop paying attention to their grammar and definite and definite articles and plurals and pronouns and prepositions, right? And uh, yes, idioms and vocabulary and metaphors and malaprops and onomatopoeia, right? And alliteration. Those are necessary for everyone. And when English is our second language, as you certainly know, and I certainly know because of uh, family members and my girlfriend and everyone in my life, frankly, has English as a second language, is that it's even more challenging to be able to present their ideas and articulate what they're thinking and what they're feelings. And yes, we have to bring it to another level and break through so that idiomatic phrases, which are used all the time, are understood and used, not just from a comprehension standpoint. Yeah. Plus, I'm, I'm French, so I got another layer of difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> you, you talk about changes. What big lessons you have learned in your life that forced you to make big changes? Hmm. I'll tell you what. How we, how we handle stress. 
Okay. I'm a cancer survivor. And one of those experiences going through chemo and radiation, all those nine yards. And then not only that, after that, I've had four knee surgeries in the last three and a half years. I've broken in my life 13 bones. All of those things have given me tremendous physical kind of challenge and, and, and a difficulty. What I learned from that is, hold on, hold the phone. What's that old quote? If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. And if it doesn't matter, you don't mind kind of thing. You have to be able to put it in some sort of perspective. So for instance, on the chemo, I did my chemo on Friday. So I could be back to work on Monday because they said it's going to take about three days for you to kind of regenerate another week and a half before my next treatment, whatever those four formats are. But who we work with, listen, there's a lot of toxic people in this world. It's not about negative naysayers. We do want naysayers. In fact, you should, too many people are surrounded by yes people. They just say what they want to hear. We see it in leadership right now. We see it in government. We see it in, in all kinds of business. And it's essential people call you on it and say, you know what? That's not going to work. And yes, what we were talking about before as entrepreneurs, it's a very lonely business because we, I, listen, I would love to delegate. But the fact of the matter is most of the things I'm going to do it myself. I built my own website. Could I have someone manage that? Yeah, but I'm still going to have to text them, say, hey, listen, add this testimonial or make this change on my website. By the time I do that, it's done. You know, I have an accountant, I have lawyers, all that, fine. But my bookkeeping, I do myself. By the time I need that expense thing added into my thing, I've done it myself. Our phones, our computers today, we can do everything if we do. Now, as my business grows and scales, I'm going to have divisions, I'm going to have departments, and yes, I'm going to put department heads, and I'm going to delegate. But guess what? I will know exactly what they do. I will know exactly what is necessary in each of those departments. And most CEOs of companies do not. Mm -hmm. Remember, a lot of people are hired CEOs. They pull and they go from one company to another company. That's their skill set. They never built something themselves entrepreneurially. I'm not knocking them. I mean, I don't think that's something I could do. The only reason I'm a CEO of my own small little company is because I built it and created it literally from nothing, which I love. I love that it's just, this just didn't exist before from what I was doing. Because I know a lot of coaches and trainers, they're not doing what I'm doing. And they're certainly not doing it how I do it. You seem very passionate about it. I think passion is something that can clearly defines you. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I care about it so much. It's because it's the livelihood. This is not about motivating. I do motivate. I know people tell me that I get them inspired, right? I get them kind of really ready and gung-ho for their week, but that's not what I want to do that. I want them to be able to hit their plan, to hit their quota, hit their numbers, right? To be able to achieve what they do. Not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. You know, when I work November, December are my biggest months, Laurent, because people are getting fired between Christmas and New Year's. It's a huge, that little gap there, that's when most companies are cleaning house on their sales team, right? And if people don't have points on the board, at least that's at least showing promise. So for me, you know, that 48-year-old, 49-year-old guy or gal with a mortgage and three children to support and struggling to hit their numbers, that's a big deal. So I take it very seriously and I really appreciate that the things we're talking about, they actually use and do. So accountability is key. They don't work for me. But if we're going to coach and we're going to work together, we want to get to another level, then it's going to require actual, you know, physical action to do things. That's why whiteboards are a big thing for me. I'm always saying, write it down. My mama used to say, if you don't write it down, it doesn't exist. What are you the most proud of? You know, I, I, it was really interesting after the whole cancer experience. And, you know, when people found out within the community of cancer that I was a public speaker and I had cancer, it was like, come here, right? And I didn't want to be a cancer boy. <laughs> That's not my identity. But I'm particularly proud about the idea, and someone said this to me recently, I thought it was kind of neat, that it was not about just surviving cancer, Josh. He said, you're thriving from cancer. And that was really some dark days for me. Those were some really difficult times where I faced my own mortality. And I look at life and I have a prism that is different 
than earlier in my life. I'm 52 years old right now. I've gone through a whole heck of a lot of things, not just obviously the physical stuff. I've been laid off in my life. I've been caught up in restructures and acquisitions and, and layoffs. I know what those difficulties are. I've always been grateful for this fact, though, as a really, and I say skilled salesperson in the sense that I really appreciate it for what it is. It's not natural ability that I could always get a job. I was never out of work in a sense. I could always get a job selling something for someone. And so that is, I think, what I'm proud about, that those skill sets became of great value. And speaking is what they go hand in hand. And even Warren Buffett always talks about, right? He doesn't talk about his, his degree from Columbia. He talks about his Dale Carnegie certificate he had of public speaking and sales as being kind of the, the influence of his success. And so I'm proud of those elements of taking those and actually putting them into motion. Right. The idea that I was a young actor, you know, pulling my thumbs, waiting for a job, you know, and then manifesting that into a whole nother ball game is something very exciting to me. And I, I hope it inspires young artists of all kinds that they don't have to be just be out of work or waiting tables or doing that. They could be taking those skills to another way and making a tremendous living. And I do a program on this on how a, an artist makes a living while they're making a life because it's essential. And sometimes what we think is out there. Is wrong just because we admire someone particular and we think oh i want to do what they do or they i like their lifestyle that's not going to fit for you the idea of being an actor i don't know what people think what that might mean but you're going to be waiting around a lot unless you're creating your own stuff and by the way even if you're doing it in film and television that role is not what you did when you were on high school and college doing a play and playing a character from start to finish for two hours it's a completely different experience i don't think many of them know that what it's like to sit on a set for 16 hours this is uh, exaggerated by the social media now. Like everybody yes. is looking for that next like, the next, the next fan. Everybody is looking by the number of you on their post. And I have the impression that entrepreneurs also are not looking at the right targets because they're getting. I think so. I agree with that. The virtual world and the and the reality. And I'll tell you about that actually on that notion. I, I have what seventeen hundred people I think on my Instagram. I got a buddy who's got 90,000 followers, crickets. But I get 15, 20 DMs a week. <laughs> Not decision makers, right? I get the direct messages. <laughs> and that's exciting. I mean, it's like I get really interesting response on all social media. In fact, I work with a lot of older folks in their 60s and 70s. And guess what? They have to work now. And many of them, not only they want to, they need to work. And they need to understand the landscape of social media. In fact, one of them, he said, well, Josh, social media is stupid. I said, it's not stupid. It's dumb. And the way people are using it is dumb. I don't have a YouTube channel for a reason. That's a different business model. For me to create content, and let's say I was successful, Loren, and I got a million followers. But if I don't create content next week, where do they go? Bye-bye. I'm not interested in working for YouTube free. I'm not interested in giving free content out to people of a demographic that may or may not use me. I do work with a lot of millennials. Yes, I do. And kids who are still in college. But those folks are learners. Those people who want to build and grow their skill set to get to another level. That's why I often won't work with people when they call me and say, Josh, I just need some quick tips for a speech on Thursday. No, well, that doesn't help you. You're, that's nothing. It's like golf. Here, you know, keep your arms straight, your legs. Are, what? That, that's not a skill. Build the skill. Take the time to cultivate it. And don't presume, because there's this. I really believe there's this commonsensical concept. In fact, there's a great book called The Death of Common Sense that people just presume, well, I've been talking all my life. Why can't I just go and talk in front of a group of people? I said, you can't. It doesn't work that way. You're held to a higher regard. And by the way, native speakers are held to even higher regard. So when my students with English as a second language apologize, say my English is not very good or this, that, I said, please don't say that. I admire you. You speak multiple languages. Most Americans barely speak one. 
Thank you. <laughs> well, it's true. It's very important. And it deserves not only that respect and admiration, appreciation, and let you know that don't, don't let that be a hindrance, right? And I don't think people should be apologizing for anything, right? I, I think they you know, shouldn't say, excuse me, I'm not very good at public speaking. You know, people do that all the time. How many people starting speeches? Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Bob. I'm not very good at public speaking. Uh, today I'm going to talk about. Well, guess what, Bob? They know who you are. You were just introduced. Bob, you don't need to tell us you're not good at this because now I don't know if I want to listen to you. And three, telling me what you're going to talk about, <laughs> it's on the piece of paper. I came here to hear what you're talking about. Now, the interesting element you talked about, uh, the young kids and this fascination, there's some narcissism going on here. And there is a concern because there is this notion, and I think it always existed to a degree, but it is this fake it till you make it, act as if. When people are young and they're interviewing for a job, they're not hiring you for 30 years of experience. They're hiring you for your potential. They want to see where you can be in this organization. And is there leadership capacity? If you stick around long enough, because most of these kids are quitting after six, seven months to something better because they live in a world of swipe left and right and there's something better on the horizon. So that becomes kind of a challenge. So people in my age or older, I'm encouraging them, listen, you're bringing a lot to the table. There's a lot of frustrating ageism for a lot of folks. I have a lot of clients in their 60s, as I mentioned, in 70s, who, who were laid off of their companies and, need, and want to entrepreneurially start again, something new. But as Phil Knight said from Nike, you know, he wrote a great book on this, and he said that there are two things you have to have in your business as your business plan. Yes, you have to have passion, and you got to have a niche. If you had known everything that you know now, what would you have done differently in the past? That's an interesting question because I just had a young client ask me, he's 22, he said, Joshua, I want to do what you do. I said, you know what? So do I. <laughs> and at 22, I wouldn't have known what that was. And I think I had to go through a certain amount of layoffs. And look, at, uh, for 30 years, man, I've gotten a chance to look under the hood of all of these companies, over 45, I think, almost 50 companies where I worked directly with them in different capacities. And I know... And quite frankly, a lot of people know this. The left hand does not know what the right hand's doing. There is just too much inefficiency. There's too much going on that just, you're not, you're not stable by going to work for a company. You're not going to be there for 30 years like they did years ago. So those things don't exist. In fact, I tell people, you know what? You want to go out there and come out the gate swinging fine. I do think if there's an opportunity to go work for somebody for a while and learn on their dime and travel on their dime, they're willing to send you. That's a great opportunity. Right, Because then you can see what they do wrong, Loren, and then you can fix it and say, you know what, when I start my business, I'll be ready. I think what people need is patience. Right? There's this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect, and the notion is that at a certain point in our life, we think we know everything, usually when we're about 16. But quite frankly, 22 as well. Right? Kids are coming out of school, they got it all figured out. Well, you know what? If they say it takes 10 years, 10,000 hours to become an expert, and you're going to have to spend your 20s to do that. You're not going to become a millionaire by 24. Yes, there are circumstances the companies take off. But guess what? The likelihood is you'll probably be fired because you're not mature enough to run the company at that level. And we've seen that now time and time again. Remember, Steve Jobs was fired in the 90s. He was brought back. He crushed it. So I, I think patience would help. Stop with the compare and contrast. A lot of folks are getting so caught up. I know these kids are going through some, when I say kids, you know, people in their 20s and 30s are struggling with this depression and anxiety. What am I going to do? How am I going to make a living? I can't buy a house. Right? They can't get a car loan or whatever. They need to really slow, slow down and not worry what everybody else is doing. You know, I got a 35-year high school uh, reunion party thing coming up this year. And it's really funny. Many of these people I haven't seen literally since high school. 
But you take your average kid in their 20s today, they know where every single one of their friends is from literally day one, from kindergarten, and they will for the rest of their life. They're not out of touch with anybody. So that puts a lot of pressure on them. They have to wonder, oh my gosh, look who's getting married. Look who just got his MBA. Look who's starting his business. Look who got, oh my gosh, oh, he got a term sheet. I don't have it. What's going to happen? Focus, stay in your lane. My sister's a therapist. She told me this for years. I love this. I think it's fantastic. People should just stay in their lane. They're looking at models, the Kardashians, for example. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, and they see success. Oh, she's a, uh, the young one, right? She's a, um, she's a self-made billionaire. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not a reality. And you know what? Bless her. That their family, they're whatever they're doing, and they've been able to monetize the hell out of that notion of, of uh, influence or whatever that is. I think we need to look at that because this notion of influencing people is not exactly positive. I think a lot of young people, I have a lot of YouTubers and one young lady, she has 4 million followers. Laurent, she can't get up in front of 40 people. This is a problem. I had six clients at, at, at um, VidCon this summer. They want to know how you built channel growth. Tell us your process, how you built your business. And many of them don't know, right? They, they're like suddenly looking at all these people at them and they're 23 years old. They don't know what they did. Mm-hmm. There was some luck. I don't believe in luck, by the way. I teach poker and chess and all those other things. And even with my cancer, I don't believe in luck. I believe in randomity. Certain things happen, certain reasons. And I jump on it and I seize it. And I recognize it as a wonderful opportunity. And it's not always about making money. If we focus on opportunities about only what it does for me, then we're giving ourselves a disservice because there's things we need to learn. And there's people who can teach us. What is your big dream for your business? VR. VR. Virtual reality. I'm very excited where we're going on this. I've been working on this now for three years. We're doing some tremendous advancement now with this where we take your photo up, envelop it on a hyper-realistic avatar. It's got these humanoid characteristics like scratching your head or raising your hand or crossing your arms and disbelief. And based on the intonation and cadence of the speaker, Laurent, we could gamify it. And right now, we have already an app. It's called Big Talk. It's not, I'm not been marketing out to everybody else. My clients have access to it. You get a device. It goes in the headset, in the VR headset. We're also on Oculus Quest and also on Oculus Go. You know, Facebook owns those. But what it does is it enables you to practice your speech right now with where we are with our tech. To look down, you see the wooden floor, you see the lights, you see 300 people in an auditorium. So now you can practice your speeches. My acting students can practice their monologues, right? The no- another room you go into, you can practice presenting to 15 people around a conference room with your PowerPoint, right? And a third room, there's four people asking you questions, right, for job interviewing. This is an awesome opportunity to practice that. And so because of this VR world, you really are ensconced and enveloped by it that you believe you're there. And that can help mitigate anxiety, nerves, stressors, and practice effectively. I believe it, and I'm working on a book on this, Wing It Doesn't Fly, you have to practice. People do not practice. Oh, I'll just wing it. No, don't just wing it. You're going to humiliate yourself. And then what will happen is it will not go well, and you'll never want to do it again. And then in public speaking, and I often talk about this, there is no room for mediocrity. You're either really good at it or you're not. And if you're not, you're not going to keep at it if it doesn't serve a purpose because it's too stressful. It's too stressful. It is the biggest fear that people have over death, over spiders. And I know that. And I want them to assuage those, skill, those fears. I want them to get past it because it's not an issue of being a natural. This is a skill set. So take the time, learn the skill set. What does that mean? Break it down systemically. Eye contact, gestures, vocal variety, how to implement humor, how to speak extemporaneously, right? With no notes. Yes, body language and reading people. All of those things help us become better communicators and effective because every action has a reaction. Just like I tell my acting students, 
just like a lawyer doesn't ask a question he doesn't know the answer to, we all need to be more skilled at what we do and not expect or be entitled or presume it's just going to come. Nothing just comes. Would that, would that be your main recommendation to entrepreneurs out there? Be more skilled at what they do? Yes. If you're not familiar with one element, if you say your weakness is uh, Excel, then go become a champion in your office. Take the time, take a program, of course, go watch it on YouTube. I don't care. And figure out how you can use Excel and more effectively. I have a student who's a math teacher, right? His biggest challenge is his students say, oh, where am I going to need this? I don't need this. I never use this. Yes, you will. We're going to deal with so many unknowns. That's the value of algebra, right? Is those that unknown. What's X? What is X? It's elusive. What are we seeking for? What are we trying to attain? And there are ways to do that because others have done it. But what they do, if you follow their process flow exactly, their path, there are other reasons. I don't want someone to go through cancer. My experience of, of what enlightenment I had to come to certain kind of view. No, but I will tell you, if you work on this element of clarity and vocal variety, you're going to be a better, you're going to have better elocution. You're going to speak crisper. You're going to speak clearly. People will understand what you say. If you're a manager, you can be able to delegate more effectively. Those things we can learn. We should learn. And if we're putting it off, then what do we expect? And so I work with a lot of folks that get to that next level and they say, oh, Josh, I definitely want to work with you. I'm going to wait until I get there. Really? At that point, when they say, hey, Bob, come on in. We'd like you to go present. We're doing a conference here. It's, uh, it's 5,000 people, but I really want to hear about your successes, you guys. And then he's like, wait a minute, what? Yes, and yes, their arms are crossed and they want to know, why is this guy so successful? He can't even present his idea. How did he even get funding for this thing? Mm -hmm. So it actually will backfire. So I always leave with, I always tell people, if you're good at what you do, I guarantee you, you'll be asked to speak to a large group. And guess what? If you're really good at it, yeah, people are going to come up and ask you to speak at their organization. And they're going to ask you a simple question. What's your rate? You, you mentioned learning and uh, books are a great way to learn. And I know you're an avid book reader. So here's my last question for you. What books would you recommend? One particular I like in that same subject is um, by Josh Waitskid. It's called The Art of Learning. The idea, I love elements like that. I like, of course, uh, the old one I refer to. I'm amazed how many people don't know that book, and they should. How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's kind of a weird title, but it has value. It was written in 1936, but there's an, a, a new one that came out about 10 years ago called uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People in the Digital Age. Mm -hmm. I think people need to be aware of what's going on now and how we do that. There's a manner of business that has never changed. If you look at some of the most skilled people in the world, what is it they're doing? How are they doing what they're doing? How do they manage their day? And so there's a lot from us to learn from others and then see how we can put it into practicality ourselves and get rid of all the things that are confusing us and stressing us out and And take a moment, you know, to appreciate the wonderful things in life. And, you know, look, I love video games. I've been a big gamer since the 70s, right, with Pong and all that. I'd love to see the development of technology over the years. That's just one part of all kinds of things. VR, I love virtual reality. Why? I've been doing it for years now. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. I box every morning on that. I burn 300 calories in 30 minutes. Why aren't people on VR for health? It's fantastic for fitness. There are a whole realm of things that are really, really important. I believe people should be getting standing desks. Stop sitting all day long. There's a lot of specific, I think people need to be drinking more water, right? Not waiting until they're thirsty. They need to get those red blood cells in their brain. They got to get that oxygen. They need to be thinking clearer. They have to have better acuity and mental sharpness. 
There's a whole host of things. They do need to find ways to eat better. You know, we got to find, I'm not saying people should go vegan or this, then do whatever they like to do, but recognize if you eat a lot of carbs and a lot of sugar, you're going to be tired. If you're tired, guess what? Zero productivity. That's why we have in America the 10 o'clock coffee break and then the three o'clock people have these big sandwiches for lunch and no wonder they're exhausted by three o'clock. That's affecting our productivity. And I don't mean about how we're making money. I'm, I'm talking about how we're thinking and getting done what we want to do. We all got 24-7. We don't know how long we have, right, on this green earth. Let's make it useful and worthwhile. Thank you very much, Joshua, for your passion. <laughs> uh, you're very welcome, my friend. Guys, thank you very much for listening. I hope you got some very practical tips from today's conversation. And see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>